0: I have images from my junior school, from my senior school, before people had cameras, because I was the first in my family to go to uni, so it wasn't something like my parents could help me with in terms of navigating, etc. So no matter what role I was in, whether I was working in domestic violence, whether I was working in the NHS, etc, I always became like the work photographer. We had a change of government, the Conservatives got in, they announced that there would be austerity cuts, and they offered me a job in the death service. Not death, death as in dead. And that's kind of how my business grew. I didn't have any business advice. I didn't have anybody around me to guide me. It just kind of happened.
1: And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and the life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out, and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And as you know, today I have have something special. I have someone who is normally behind the lens. She's normally taking amazing shots of people. And today we get to kind of put her front and center from the camera just built behind scenes with her as you all know i don't do intros i love my guests to introduce themselves in a way that is relevant to them so i'm going to ask you my esteemed guest to introduce yourself
0: okay hi everyone my name is denise maxwell i'm from lens eye photography um kind of does what it says on the tin i'm a photographer um i photograph. um i've been a full-time photographer for 12 years so um, I like to know and I like to think that I know how to press a button or two. Um, I've, I shoot a few different things because one of the things that people always say to me when you first, when you say you're a photographer, the next question then always is, well, what do you shoot? Um, and people kind of expect you to say, I do weddings or I do portraits or, you know, one particular genre. Um, whereas I'm a little bit different in terms of the fact that I shoot lots of different things. So, all the way from portraits, sports, fashion week. Um, In sports, I was one of the Commonwealth Games photographers. I shoot the Diamond League. Um, I do a lot of events, campaigns. Um, Most of my work is on the corporate and commercial side rather than the family side. So, although I do 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 some family stuff, most of it is corporate and commercial. Um, So, yeah, not... I don't do a lot of weddings. I don't do a lot of family portraits, parties, that kind of thing. Um, nothing wrong with it, but that's just not where where I'm placed. So, yep. So I cover lots of different lots of different things. Um, I get to shoot some of the. I think I call it the sexier side of photography. <laughs> um, so by that I mean I get to work with and photograph some of the people that I might have watched on TV when I was younger or some of the events that I might have followed on television when I was younger. And now I'm one of those photographers of those events or one of those people shooting some of those people. So um, that's what I do photography-wise. I also mentor and also deliver classes for emerging photographers and photographers wanting to make photography their full-time living rather than a side hustle.
1: I want to pick up on the point you made around be one of people when you were younger, looking at people taking pictures, and now you're doing that. Were there signs from early childhood that hinted at you having a future as a photographer that you can re- recollect?
0: Okay, signs that there were signs, but I didn't recognise them as signs. And what I mean is that you know when you have the benefit of being able to look back, and you know the you know all the privilege that history gives you, and that you know when you've kind of come past a situation. I look back now and I have images from my junior school, from my senior school, before people had cameras. So I'd borrow my mum's, it was like a 110 camera. It was like a long thin thing with like a a handle here that you'd fold over and close onto the camera. You had like a a, a long film that was like about this long that that would go inside the camera. And even then I would borrow my mum's camera on the last day of school to take pictures of the whole class and it didn't seem like anything then because I just knew I wanted pictures of the of, of the class and my mates but now when I look back nobody else did that then nobody else at all so I'm literally one of the only people that have got pictures of us like I say leaving secondary school leaving junior school etc so even back then imagery was always important to me and then when I was old enough then to buy my own camera um yeah this was the days before mobile phones before everyone had a mobile phone and before definitely before everyone had a mobile phone with a camera I had a 35 millimeter camera that I'd carry around with me and my friends when we were going to carnivals and you know out on our day savers for the day and whatever and I had this 35 millimeter camera that I would bring everywhere so I've got a lot of our teenage years documented because I was this person that carried around a camera when nobody else had a camera.
1: So you're the one that's got the receipts on people?
0: <laughs> I've got all the receipts. <laughs> oh, yeah, because at the time, everybody was always complaining. Oh, put your camera away. Oh, you've got that out again. What, are you taking a picture for me now? I look, I look rough, I look a mess, etc. And now it's all those pictures now when we look back at them and we can see, oh, remember your first flat and... You know, remember when such and such happened and remember when we used to wear this and remember when we went to this place. And yeah, I've got all those receipts.
1: What is it about imagery or capturing the moment of film that you find important and captivating even now?
0: I don't know why I find it important, but I've always found documenting things important. Even like when it even when we got to the stage where we all had phones and we all had phones with cameras, most people will get rid of the phone and then all their images have gone. I've always backed up my phones. So I have all the images from my very first phones, etc., all backed up on hard drives. And every now and again, I'll send them to friends. So I'll just like be going through a hard drive and I'll just send people a random image from 1990-something, 2000-something, and etc. I don't know why, but I've always thought it really important to document I don't know where that's come from but it's just something that I've always thought really important and to and to back up and to ensure that those documents are out there and now I'm at the stage where, I'm, where I'm, I'm thinking I need to do something more without those documents so I need to I need to get books done I need to have exhibitions I need to get more of that imagery out there that's now you know 20 30 years old it's gained it's gained value because so much has changed so um, I've just always felt it important to document stuff. I don't know where it's come from.
1: Before you went, I guess, full-time doing this or making a career, you used to do different bits and pieces, like back in the day, I think you were, what, NHS, anti-racism, domestic abuse. Yeah, what? What was your path when you think back? Because like you said, photography wasn't the thing you were going to go into at that point in time anyway, looking backwards. So what was it that you were focused on pursuing from a very young age?
0: Well, when I left to sixth form, I wanted to be a social worker. <laughs> Thank goodness I didn't pursue that one. <laughs> because everybody I know in social work now I hate it.
1: Stress. It's a lot.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, exactly that word. Exactly that word. So I wanted to be a social worker because I wanted to help people. That's how I perceived social work at that time. And I'm sure that's the reason why a lot of people go into into a field like that. And I'd traditionally always done jobs where I was helping people, so very communi- community-orientated types of jobs. So that's what I wanted to do when I left sixth form. It was, it was out of that and a lawyer. I remember writing down on our sixth form leavers book, either that or a lawyer. So that was my idea then um but then when i went to uni um i I'd, I'd, i don't know if that is i don't know if i didn't have the knowledge to know how to get into those fields because i was the first in my family to go to uni so it wasn't something like my parents could help me with in terms of navigating etc so the course i did wasn't really a course that could get me on a path to either of those things So um, after I did my course, my my uni course was in social policy and women's studies. After I did that course, I um, started working in my very first job after uni, which was about a year after leaving, was in a women's refuge. So I worked with survivors of domestic abuse, and I did that in different guises for a few years. Um, So. First of all, is working with the women that were leaving the refuge, then women that were staying in the refuge, then I'd deliver training around issues of domestic abuse, and then i deliver training with young people on um, recognising the cycle of abuse and healthy relationships. So I, I did work around that kind of issue for quite a few years, um, and that led me into... I'm trying, to th- I'm trying to think of my career path now. Um... um I also did some work with young mothers, and after that, I that led me into the longest job just before I became um, self-employed, which was working for the NHS, delivering work around anti-racism and the origins of the, this thing we call race, which is what racism is based on.
1: So wait a minute, when you when you say social work, and you know, we're laughing like it's stress. Everything that you just described to me right now, it's a massive emotional and mental overload in that space. It's a, it's a lot of stuff that you're carrying and you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. So you're already in that field anyway of something that was requiring a lot from you.
0: It was, however, I had an amazing team around me. I had an amazing boss. Um, I had a lot of autonomy in what I was doing. Um, I had a job where I didn't feel as though... I was overloaded to the point of breakdown, which is what some of my social work friends feel with the, the 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 workloads that they have. So although I was dealing with heavy subjects, the people around me, the autonomy, and me being able to space out my workload made it more than enjoyable. So I, I I'm very fortunate to have always had jobs that I've really enjoyed and... Anytime I've had a job that I haven't enjoyed, I haven't stayed there long.
1: You had the, you always had that, I'm going to call it the confidence and courage to be like, if this is not serving me, I can pack my bags and leave. Because a lot of times you find where people like, if they might not enjoy something, they still stay there. So what was it around you being like, if I don't enjoy something, I'm happy to leave?
0: Again, I can't put my finger on what it was, but I remember back then, jobs were very easy to come by. I could leave a job today and I know that within three months I'd have another job. And that would happen, that, that's happened a few times. So it, it wasn't something I ever felt that I needed to worry about. And I think as well that, that after after leaving uni and starting my career, every kind of couple of years I ended up getting a new qualification for something. So something that, a qualification that I picked up either um, on the job or they'd send me on a course, etc., so after about 10 years, 15 years, I just had a whole bank of qualifications that I could kind of call on. So I'm, I'm a qualified youth worker. I'm a qualified counsellor. I'm a qualified mentor. And I could I could literally call on any of these in terms of getting a new role. So it wasn't something that, that worried me when, when I thought to myself, yeah, this job isn't the one. I'm going to find something else.
1: So in all that, call it the different things that you're doing and pouring into that and being in the, the nhs role what was it that made you pick up your camera and start to turn into a side hustle which is what initially you were doing before you made it full time
0: so like i said it started from me always wanting to document so no matter what role i was in whether i was working in domestic violence whether i was working in the nhs etc i always became like the work photographer so i was always the person capturing the events doing the staff portraits, all of this stuff that happened around each business. I always became that person. So, again, it it was almost like it was just... There were always signs, but I just didn't see them. So, um, how I I kind of started to the path of where I am today is that um, we had a change of government. The Conservatives got in. They... Um, straight away they announced that there would be austerity cuts. Um, And the austerity cuts would start in the NHS, the very service that I was in. Um, And we started seeing lots of different changes happen in the NHS. We started seeing um, things like um, people's offices disappeared and they had to come into a central hub. Then we saw things like hot desking. I don't know if if you, you know what that is, where you don't have your own desk, which is so... It's so disorientating. It's it's absolutely terrible. Um, so yeah, we started seeing things like hot desking. So obviously that then meant that they wouldn't need to rent as many properties for staff. Um, and there's lots of things that were just constantly cutting down on budgets and cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting budgets. Also means cutting services. Cutting services then means cutting people. It then means that the people that are left have a more difficult job to do because they're still expected to deliver the same. with less resources and less people so all of this started happening and um, we were told that we would all be offered alternative jobs Um, first of all what happened with our service like I said we worked on anti-racism so specifically that subject we were told that we would um, would it be possible for us to deliver all the issues to do with oppression so whether that's anti-racism sexism LGBT issues, etc., and our response was, our, as a as an organisation, well, no, I'm not, I'm not trained in any of that, so it's not just sort of something you can kind of just lump together and say, oh, you deliver something on oppression, so you can deliver all the all the issues of oppression. So already, I kind of thought, okay, I can kind of see where this is going. Um, and then, um, they looked at alternative jobs that they could offer some of the people that would be that were that were earmarked for redundancy, of which I was one of them. And um they offered me a, a job in the death service. Not death death service. Death as in dead. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, um, it was something to do with liaising with the families of people that were recently bereaved or something like that. I thought that's 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 not me. That's yeah, it's, it's not me. And I could just see all these signs that, that would just say that um it wasn't going to be the job that i'd loved for so long it wasn't going to be we weren't going to be working in the same place i'm sure we'd have a different workload i'm sure we'd have less autonomy i'm sure we wouldn't have the kind of happy happy and easy working environment that we had because we we had our own office as a project so there was the four of us that that were in the project and it it was just a very easy going office um we had a comfortable area at one end of the office where we could eat our lunch. So we had sofas, etc. We had all posters up the wall of different things that had meant things to us throughout the year, throughout the years, different journeys we'd been on, places we'd been to, et etc. Um, it was just a, it's just a really lovely working environment, and your working environment does make such a difference. So going from that and then being in a, in a, a, the, a head office where there's people that you don't even know and you haven't even got your own desk and you're having to fight for a desk in the mornings, And if you don't get a desk, you're working in the coffee area or you're working in your car. Everything just changed so, so much. And I thought, this is not going to be a place that I'm going to want to stay in. It's not going to be the place that I'm going to be happy with my health. Um, Part of what we used to deliver with anti-racism is we used to deliver it under the public health agenda in the NHS. So basically, we used to deliver it as a public health issue. So that's to say that if you experience racism, it's going to affect your health, which then ends up in the NHS, which then ends up costing the NHS money. So that's why the NHS was challenging racism, because it actually ends up costing the NHS money.
1: And for, just for context, we're talking about way back in 20, 2010 or those kind of times. So this is way before George Floyd, people were thinking this is recent, yes. this is way back. Different times, <laughs> different, different, different energy and approach and money and budgets available as well
0: absolutely absolutely that though, those were the days of every town having a race equality council you know a council specifically to tackle racism so very very different times I, I find there are actually much more forward-thinking times than we're in actually now yeah so we, we were suddenly moved to like I say this head office and I just knew it wasn't going to be the place that I wanted to be in and like I said because we delivered our work under the public health agenda I understood how important your social health is to your physical health. So me being in an environment that I didn't enjoy, that I didn't necessarily like who I was working with, where I felt pressured, where I didn't feel comfortable, et cetera, that I knew that it would affect, eventually affect my health. So I thought to myself, you know what, they want loads of people, they want to make loads of people redundant. I'll be one of them. Um, And I thought redundancy, and I thought to myself, I wonder if I can make a go of this photography thing. Um, before I left, I my boss allowed me to have day release from um, from the project in order to go to a college course on photography for a local college. So by the time I left, I was nearing the end of a qualification in photography as well. Um, and I just thought, let me give it a go.
1: But what was that thought process like for you? Because making a switch from working in an environment... Um, let's call it corporate environment, to going out on your own to do something very different. It's not ever such an easy, straightforward thing. I know we make it out to be because we all do it. and We've, we've been in that world. But what's that, what was that, what's that? What was that process like for you? Who did you talk to, if anyone at all? What were some of the fears and worries that you had for making that, de- that decision, if you can remember?
0: I can't remember talking to anyone about it. I didn't have anyone around me that I was close enough to that ran a business that was self-employed or that were full-time creatives. So I can't, if I've forgotten, then I apologise, but I can't remember talking to anybody in those early days about like, what happens now? How do you run a business? I just started, I started with um, getting bookings from friends and family to do portraits or to cover an event or to cover I don't know a funeral or whatever so it started off with the people around me Um, and then um, I would create my own projects of things that I wanted to shoot from some of those projects I then got to meet people outside of my circle so one project for example I did a project in maybe maybe 2011 maybe on redheads so I just I like red hair (laughs) and I decided I was going to do a portrait project on redheads and speak to them about their experiences of if it's made a difference in their life if they've experienced anything specifically because of the red hair etc and I started this project at college and um I then widened it outside of college and would approach people in the street to take part in my project. Would they sit sit Would they sit for me during a portrait session, etc.? Some people said yes. Some people said no. From that project, I then got one of the redheads that came forward was actually somebody in Birmingham Uni. I can't remember. She was a manage manager in Birmingham Uni, and I got my fourth, first corporate booking from that because she sat for the redhead um, project, loved her images, and was like, oh. Would you be able to come and do some prospectus images for us? That was my very first corporate booking, <laughs> and that was obviously, like I say, from a, a self-directed project. Um, from that same redhead project as well, I um, I had a, a few exhibitions from it, but then I also thought I just thought like there was more legs in it than it could that something more could happen from that. So I went online, having a look to see you know what others had done before and what had been done around it before. And I found a whole festival for redheads. Well, the Redhead Festival, it happened in Breda in the Netherlands once a year, same weekend as Carnival. And um, literally like 7,000 redheads from across the world come together. Yep, yep. And literally this whole town for that weekend is just full of redheads. Just everywhere is just redheads. And they just come together. They watch films where... The lead roles are redheads. They have talks. There's different portrait sessions. They have community. They just come together and feel comfortable and enjoy being red. <laughs> um, and I got in contact with the um, the organizer of that event and told him what I was doing, etc. And he invited me to come over and shoot shoot the festival as well. So I ended up speaking at the festival, shooting part of the festival, etc added that to my project, um, and then when I came back, I was contacted by the BBC radio, BBC radio, um, they was having a discussion about redheads, can I be on an expert panel? <laughs> and then for the next year or so, I was being paid by the BBC to be on an expert panel about redheads.
1: And it just sounds like a movie in itself.
0: <laughs> so um I, I literally it, I think that success in anything some of it's hard work but some of it's also look of the draw where you are right place right time etc so my business just ended up growing and growing and growing partly from like I say the connections that I'd made but then obviously you know how it goes a connection passes on to another person passes on to another person etc then you get bigger and bigger events, et cetera. And that's kind of how my business grew. I didn't have any any business advice. I didn't have anybody around me to to guide me. It just kind of...
1: Did it? happen? <laughs> so. Yeah, I listened to you say it, and for me, it sounds very much like you, you backed yourself. Because even being able to create a project like that, which me and it would sound very out there and very abstract but actually it's quite unique and original and then proceeding to build on the back of that and obviously like someone resonate with you you got that first corporate booking at the uni but you thought actually there's something around this let me keep on pushing with this there are times when we step into something new and people be like oh i'm waiting for someone to come to me but you put yourself out there, you put your content out there and that is kind of built on the back of to help you start to generate that buzz for you. So I think there's something around even that is if you say you're going to do something and go all in, you can't just wait for it to come. It's not going to land in your lap. You have to be proactive, but you're supposed to be quite creative. And it sounds very much like you, you create a lane for yourself, that blue ocean strategy, where there wasn't one and that helps you start to do something very different.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm very big on being proactive on going out and creating part of your destiny on putting the graft in work that I do with emerging photographers I am forever telling people you've got to put the graft in don't just sit back and and wait for opportunities to come to you opportunities are out right there but you have to go and find them. you have to go and grab them you have to take them up so I'm very very big on that um and that's not to say that everything that i've put out there has worked there's been lots of things i've put out that completely flopped (laughs) but uh, i always say uh, this is is something i say to a lot of my friends they always say "Oh, you are always winning you've always got all these things going on and i'm saying yeah but you know for everything that you see that's a win you know i've had five losses behind the scenes that i haven't said anything about so yeah, you do get to see all the wins, but there's lots of things that I might put out, that I might try, that I might apply for, etc. that I don't get or nothing comes of it. It's just that I put out lots of hooks and every now and again, one of those hooks, you know, the bait that, you know, someone takes the bait and it it, it, it flowers, it become, it becomes something. But there's lots of hooks that I put out that just fizzle away into nothing. But that's business.
1: How do you handle rejection? and i'll add to that if you've had any things that you've tried you've got the opportunity but hasn't quite worked out so failure how do you handle both of those two things when you look at it from when you initially started to where you are right now and how you handle them
0: i can't tell you how i handled it in the beginning because i can't remember <laughs> um but i don't think anybody likes rejection i think it's a natural human emotion to not like reject, reject- rejection who, you know who wants to feel as though they haven't been chosen for whatever I don't think that's a I don't think that's unnatural to feel that um power handle rejection. I think in all different kinds of ways sometimes it will just be okay, you've just got to pick yourself up and carry on. sometimes it might be you have a few set soul for and Netflix days. Sometimes it might be let me treat myself to with me it's trainers. Let me treat myself to some new trainers.
1: What's your, what's your favourite one? I had to ask. I had to interrupt you. What's your favourite?
0: Oh, I I'm a I'm a Puma person. I'm a Puma girl. Well, yeah, for real. Oh. Absolutely, Puma are the most amazing brand. Underrated. Their trainers are so. Um, their trainers are stylish. They have all different colours. They're a fantastic price. I've got about. I must have about 30 pairs of Pumas. Everybody knows me as a a Puma girl. Like, I only wear Pumas. (laughs) So, um, yeah, they they feed into my strategy of of how I I handle rejection. My my friends will always laugh because every now and again, I'll just post a box of new Pumas. It's not a box. It's one of those boxes, you know, like those big Amazon ones that come. It's one of those boxes with about six, seven pairs in there. So um, I also have a folder, um, I have a folder where every time somebody um, comments or gives me some kind of feedback that I've helped them in something or that I've inspired them with something, I've got a folder of those comments that is just all in one folder and every now and again I'll go through those, those comments. So I have lots of people that will say to me, oh, you've inspired me to do this or... Because of what you said, I went on to do such and such, and I've got that folder as well. Every now and again, when I'm feeling a bit a bit rubbish, I'll I'll look through there as well. So I think I have, like anybody, different strategies of how I deal with that rejection. Um, also, sometimes that rejection spurs you on even more. I put a, a post on my um, Instagram a couple of days ago, and it said something like, "The best motivation motivational words anyone ever gave me was." Two words, and that's you can't. and <laughs> My response was, "Watch me." <laughs>
1: I'm going <a> to show you
0: <laughs> exactly what.
1: <laughs> From when you started to where you are right now, what do you think has been the key one, the one, two, three key lessons that you've learned that have helped you evolve and grow as a photographer and as an individual?
0: One, never think you're too big to stop learning. So I still apply for, I still apply for courses. I still apply for um, development programs and various opportunities. I still apply for all of those things. And people will be like, "You're not applying for that." I'm like, "Yep." <laughs> so never think you're too big to stop growing. Um, one, always remember to thank and acknowledge the people that have helped you on your journey so one example of that is when I when I first started doing sports which was about maybe about 2013 my very first sports event was an event in Birmingham as part of the Diamond League and is at the Alexander Stadium and sports is very very male dominated and very very white male dominated so I remember walking into the press room and I was the only woman And I think there's maybe two other black people in there. And remember I'd never covered sports before. So I just saw like this room of all these white guys with these huge lenses, all knowing each other, all talking, getting ready, doing what they were doing. And I'm thinking, okay, what do I do now? Like, what am I supposed to do now? Where do I go? Like, I literally didn't know, you know, which way to the track, what time do you go down there? I didn't know any of that stuff. I just felt so like lost in, in this room where obviously everybody knew everybody. And I was, I was a new person. And um, I put my stuff down. I remember sitting down and put my stuff down. And I sat next to the one other black person that was there. I said, there's two black people. I sat next to one of the black people, one a guy. And we got to talk him to him and he's really, really friendly. Named Cole Hazard, And he literally showed me the ropes. He told me where I had to be, like what he uses the, his triggers for what you'll see some people doing, oh, they've got a different bib so they can go in a different place and literally showed me the ropes. And to this day, as I do now, I still always credit Colvin with helping me through those very early stages of not only sports photography, but he also helped me on red carpet photography as well. And I still credit him to this day. He's a good friend now. But um, you know, I don't forget things like that. I don't forget people that have that have helped me to be where I am today because that that could have been, that could have been my introduction and into sports photography. That could have been, you know, me going there having an absolutely awful time and thinking I'm not doing that again. That that's that's me done, and then I wouldn't have had all the amazing experiences I've had covering other sport sporting events. So that's the second one to always thank and and acknowledge people. And I think the third one would be to um, to not expect people to do anything that you wouldn't do. And by that, what I mean is, if I have somebody that's working with me and they're, I don't know, my second shooter or assistant, etc., I don't ask anything of anyone that I wouldn't do myself. So if I'm asking you to carry that ladder across that room, I will carry the ladder across the room as well. It's not something that I wouldn't do. And I think it's a way of kind of... Um, keeping that kind of humility so even now I will still assist other photographers my friends will assist me and I will assist them so there'll be days when I'm carrying my friends bag, and there'll be days when they're carrying my bag and I think that just keeps you grounded in terms of yes you may be successful yes you know you may be speaking on huge stages or whatever but it's just that 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 thing of knowing this is where I've come from. This is still me. I'm still, as Jenny said, Jenny from the block. <laughs> I'm, I'm just a little old Denise. <laughs> and I'll do, I'll you know, I'll do whatever I need to do kind of thing. So I'll still assist photographers for that reason. Just keeps you very grounded. I'd say those are three things. Might not have been the types of answers you were looking for, but...
1: No, it is. They're, they're important. I think that there is always like key key principles key things that keep us grounded in the what do we do in the way that we kind of show up and to your first point I guess I was curious when is when do you know there's enough learning and you need to shift from learning to application because we can easily just learn 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 and acquire acquire a lot more knowledge so when do you know that it's enough let me just apply what I already know and hone my craft in that way
0: oh I think I'm always applying. I, I don't think that's some I don't think it's I don't think they're separate. I don't think it's learning then application. I think it's learning and application at the same time. So um I, I I say that I'm I I I get my words out. I am still always practicing. And that's something again I will say to emerging photographers. Don't be scared to continue to practice, to continue to perfect your craft. So I will still do things like okay, I mentioned trainers earlier. When I get a new pair of trainers, before I wear them, I'll do product shots on tra- on trainers. And that's an example of me just still practicing, still perfecting my craft, still trying new things, etc. And I do that with lots of different things. I'll buy something new and my husband will be like, oh, you're going to open this. I'll be like, oh, no, I haven't had time to take pictures of it yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that application is that happens all the time it's not something that happens after the learning it, it it's just continual as well
1: if you haven't already can you please follow the podcast it really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it an apple podcast if you click the three dots in the top right of your app Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. It sounds like you've intentionally done something very different to a lot of photographers that I know that I ever read about, which is you do a multitude of different things. You don't stay in a box. How come you decided to go down that route? Because I've heard it other way where I speak to the adult, like, no need to know. Know your niche, know your lane stay there and people know you for one thing whereas you've been there to excel in different fields so was that intentional right from the start and how have you managed to actually excel in the multiple spaces and place you operate in
0: yes it was intentional um for a few different reasons firstly i'd always come from jobs that had been very varied in the past so i mentioned i was a training officer in the nhs one day i'd be working with five-year-olds another day i'd be training chief executives of the hospital another day I'd been a uni another day I'd be training social workers on a social work course so I had a very I had very different days and I've always loved that about jobs I've always I've always been drawn to jobs that are very different on every day if I was in a call center for example it would drain my soul it's just not for me doing the same thing every day is not for me some people love the the structure of doing the same thing every day but for me that's that's not my bag so that's the first thing um and secondly you know what i said earlier about when somebody tells you you can't so earlier on in my career many many times i was told by many many people you have to choose a genre and go for that genre you won't be successful covering lots of different genres people won't know what you do they won't know what to book you for etc so that was motivation for me again to say okay let's see (laughs) you know there's 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 I think it's 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 I think it's wild to me to think that there's only ever one way to do something, so yes, there have been lots of photographers that are successful covering one genre but that there can't only be that way i it it, it it just that's just not the way of human nature that there's only one way to do things and I don't know if people realize it, but there are lots of signs. Um, there are actually lots of examples under our noses, but we might not see it like that. So, for example, um, I did some work with, um, he's known as a fashion photographer, Rankin, um, last year or was it the year before. And although he's known as a fashion photographer, he's got projects and books on photographing flowers, photographing eyes, photographing rubbish, photographing lots of different types of portrait um documentary work during lockdown he's got books and on so many different genres but he's known as a fashion photographer i'm like actually he's actually a multi-genre photographer he shoots so many different things but yet people still feel the the need to put him in this box of fashion photographer and he's not so there are lots of examples like that around us that people just for some reason don't see and then also when i think about some of my colleagues um so I've got colleagues for example that are known as music photographers and if you go onto their Instagram that's all you'll see music photography. However, knowing them personally, I know they cover events, I know they cover parties, I know they cover lots of different things to get their money, but all you will see on their Instagram is music photography. So in reality I think there are a lot more photographers out there that are multi-genre than we understand, but they just don't promote it in that kind of way so you know, if I wanted to, I could only put my event stuff up and people would think, oh, yeah, she's an event photographer. When in reality, I do all these other things. It's that it's that perception over um, what the reality is. So there's the two aspects of it. There's the aspect that there are actually people covering multi-genres, but for some reason, the public choose not to recognise that. And then there's the other aspect where there are photographers that only put one aspect of what they cover out there to be known as that type of photographer. But I, I never wanted to be that. I never wanted to be in a box. I wanted to be doing different things. I wanted to be testing myself weekly. And I still do that now. So if I have a sports event, I'm thinking, okay, what lenses am I bringing? What equipment am I bringing? What um, accessories am I bringing? Which is completely different to if I'm covering a an awards event, completely different set of equipment mindset going into it accessories that i might have to bring etc so it it just keeps you on your toes keeps you thinking it keeps you out of that kind of zombie zone of just picking up the same bag going into shoot this event and knowing exactly what you're doing and exactly what you're going to be faced with and it just becomes very monotonous
1: do you have a favorite though favorite type of event
0: i don't have a favorite actually no no i don't have a favorite i really really enjoy Shooting so many of the different things that I shoot, um, I say I say this all the time. I just feel so blessed to do what I do as a job, to get paid to do what I do as a job. Just feels like a blessing all the time. I get paid to be in places that people have to pay to be in. <laughs> I do. <laughs> it's true. Right, <laughs> how how isn't that a blessing? <laughs> That's
1: true. That is true. In big boy places as well
0: exactly this exactly this so um yeah i enjoy so many different types of the types of things that i do um i enjoy you know capturing people at their best i enjoy creating images that i know in a few years they'll be iconic i enjoy being able to capture those images being being able to be in some of those some of those spaces um yeah, there's just so much that I enjoy about lots of different genres.
1: So would you say you have a, regardless of being in the different genres that you do, do you have a signature style?
0: So I didn't think I did have, but a few of my colleagues have commented on this, this to me because I, I, I've i actually asked this question before. And I think my signature, signature style is clean, um, very minimal editing and very vibrant, so when I'm shooting, I always look for colours. About to say, <laughs>
1: you, you love colours,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I look for colours. I look for diversity, um, and I am very big on getting it correct in camera. So I won't come home and spend hours and days editing and changing the colours and changing all of these things, etc. I like my images to be a true reflection of what they look like in person. Um, So I'd say that that's my, that's my style. And I think that kind of works across all the different genres that I cover.
1: How do you then make sure that you, if you're doing minimal editing, that means that you must spend some time behind the lens to ensure you're capturing, I don't know, the image, the, the emotion, the moment in the best possible way at that point in time. How do you, I guess, either direct or in moments where it's just free or you're, you're taking the pictures, how do you ensure that you actually do get that? What's going through your mind? Because earlier on you mentioned around when you're going into different shoots, there's a there's a mindset, which I've never ever thought about as a photographer, to be honest. But there's a mindset, then obviously the equipment and, and a way of thought that you go into those spaces and places. So how do you get yourself into that zone of being like, right, I want to capture the best possible image, the best possible emotion at that point in time?
0: How do I get myself into that zone? Um, now, firstly, um, this this may sound very obscure, but I'll ensure or try and ensure that I've had a relaxing journey to my event. So that will start from in the car with what music I'm playing to get me in a certain mood for that event. Um, I think people who aren't photographers can underestimate how much you have to be in a particular zone to shoot a particular thing. If you've just had an argument at home and then you've got to shoot something, your shoot will be completely different to if you've had a nice, calm, relaxed entry into that event. So it'll start from in the car with what music I'm playing. Um, And then say, for example, if I'm I'm covering an awards event, I know that for most of the clients that book me, most of them book me because... I will show that award to be vibrant and happy and joyful and smiling and laughter and uplifting. I will show that in my images. That's what most people will speak about me. Speak. That's what most people will say to me when they speak about my images. Oh, it looked amazing. Everyone looked so happy. Um, You know, it just looked like it was such a vibe, etc. So I will be looking for those those moments in the crowds. I'll be looking for If I hear laughter straight away, I'm like, Where's that coming from? <laughs> so I'm tuned into kind of looking for the, the these things in order to use those as a representation of the event. Um, I'm trying to remember what the question was. I know you said said the zone, and then you said something else, and I can't remember what the second part of the question.
1: How do you ensure that you capture the I guess the right motion moment?
0: Yeah. So so it's it's looking for those moments. So in something like a like a an awards event, for example, or, a or, uh, for example, this weekend I was shooting the Birmingham festival and though a lot of the natural moments are not moments that you can direct. They just happen. So there was this one, there's this one moment where one of the acts, it was like an act that was, um, four people walking around with these big hoop things around them. And the hoop things were like, you know, um, when people have air conditioning, there's like big silver tubes that go might go all through like ceilings. These big silver tubes, or so these tubes were that they were in, were, were large enough to get a person in them. Maybe like a, a a meter diameter. So they'd have them, they'd have them all scrunched up into a hula hoop, and then they'd they'd let the hula hoop fall, and suddenly there's a big tube that's covering this person. So you just see a tube and not know there's a person inside. And then they started like making the tubes all move and like wiggle around, et cetera. And the kids were absolutely loving it. And then the tubes would like go over to one of the children suddenly like just swallow up one of the children. So they were inside the tube and then they'd let them back out again. And I just knew that that would be a moment where you would just see so much laughter amongst the children. And there was, there was just all this laughter and the parents were killing themselves laughing and then the person in the tube would would steal one of the bags or steal someone's coat or disappear down the tube and there's all these moments of laughter and like i say joy etc and it's it's kind of recognizing that's going to happen and putting yourself in 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 that place ready to shoot all of that happening happening na- naturally and that just takes practice in terms of knowing what's going to happen when something like that that occurs um so that's what that's the kind of thing I'll be looking for um when I'm capturing an event like that
1: Everything that you've done, so whether it's an event like you just described, whether it's a sports event, whether it's Cannes, BAFTAs, Fashion Week, all the massive things that you've done. Is there one where you're like super proud of and you look at yourself and you're like, I'm, I'm proud of myself that I I got to do that, I got to shoot that particular event, and if even so, why?
0: I wouldn't say a single one. There, there are lots of things that I'm really proud about or happy that I got to be involved with um one of them for example was the Commonwealth Games um I've been an athletics fan from a from from I don't know Michael Johnson and Linford Christie and Carl Lewis those kind of days if people remember all the rivalry between America and England back in the day I used to watch all those people on TV Sally Gunnell etc I used to you know, be in the living room on a Saturday afternoon with the whole family we we would all watch athletics. So I was always a big athletics fan in terms of of, of watching it. um we we weren't we were in the position to be able to afford athletics tickets, so it's not you know, I'd never end up going to the stadium to watch anything like that, et cetera. So the first time I was able to actually be in a stadium photographing an athletics event, firstly, that was amazing because it was like, suddenly I'm in this stadium that again, I used to watch on television and all the TV cameras and everything are around, but now I'm one of the photographers. So that was already amazing for me. And then um, when I got to be one of the photographers for the Commonwealth Games, again, that was just, again, I just felt so blessed. Um, Sports, as, as I mentioned, is very, very male dominated and very white male dominated. And even though it was the Commonwealth Games, bearing in mind most of the Commonwealth are countries that where there's black and brown people. Um, I think I counted maybe five black or brown female photographers across all those hundreds of countries that were there. Um, so again, I just felt in a very blessed position to be one of the people there shooting that and capturing some of those images um so yeah games is one of them I'm trying to think where, where else um i can't even think off the top of my head um another one was um i used to do more politics than i do now i don't do that much now but um if you have a a national union of journalists card you can get access to downing street um and then Most people work for an agency or magazine or newspaper and will will photograph each time a a new president comes or when there's a big thing happening at Downing Street or you can actually go to Downing Street on just a Wednesday when it's Prime Minister's questions and and photograph Prime Minister's leaving and coming and stuff. So um, becoming a member of the National Union of Journalists, being accepted and being able to access Downing Street, again, is another big thing to me. Um... I'm sure there's lots of photographers out there that think, oh, this is, that's just like standard. It's just like one of the normal things that many of us do. And I don't think for the people that think that, they understand their privilege. that There's lots of photographers that don't get anywhere close to anything like that. So um, one of my all-time favourite images is an image that I now see as iconic. And it's an image of President Obama and David Cameron leaving Downing Street they'd just had some kind of summit or something and they were both walking towards me and I think Obama might have been waving, I can't even remember if he was waving or not, but just the fact of being there, being able to have that image as one of the images in my archive, um, being able to photograph um, people that are no longer world leaders because I think world leaders are always going to be part of history aren't they, that you know that they're going to live on through history, We'll, we'll you know we'll be able to name those people for generations to come um and to think that I I'm one of the photographers that got to capture a moment like that and have those images in my archive then again that just feels like such a blessing to be able to be part of that um so yeah that's another one I could I could probably if I, if I put my head to it I could think of so many different points where I do feel that like yeah I can't believe that I'm here or it's just amazing that I'm here, or it's amazing that I can capture the these images. Oh, another one actually this year. Again, one of my highlights, being able to cover Eurovision. So I don't know if you can remember when the Eurovision song contest was really big and it'd be on everybody's TV and you'd all sit round you know, you'd all sit round as a family and watch it all. And it was like it was it was a really big thing. And I remember, I remember those days of all watching Eurovision. Um And I never, never even once crossed my mind that I'd either be able to attend a Eurovision, buy tickets to go and see, or be one of the people photographing it. It it just wasn't even, it wasn't even in my mindset. So this year, I got to cover Eurovision. I was covering it for one of my news, for the news agency that I work for. And again, it's surreal because when you're there, it just feels, in one way, it feels so normal but then in another way, you're thinking like I'm in the middle of Eurovision here. Like this has been to TVs all over the world. And I'm sitting here well, I'm I'm actually standing here as one of the photographers. Um so again, that was that just felt like such a privilege. I think let me think how many photographers there would have there would have been in, in the pit. There was probably about I say only about maybe 40 photographers shooting. And when you think about how many countries Eurovision how many countries are part of Eurovision. For me to say I'm one of 40 photographers throughout the whole Eurovision zone, I think that's a, that's a massive privilege. That's a massive achievement. There's, you know, there's, there's thousands of photographers out there, but yet I got to be one of those photographers. So again, that was just an, an, another moment for me that I just felt like, yeah, wow, I'm I'm here.
1: <laughs> ah, and that's just interesting to listen to you in recall some of these moments. It's like, as you're talking about them, you can feel the emotion like you're still physically there. It's like you're actually recapturing <laughs> the moment as you're replaying it in your mind and you can see the the joy that you get from the work that you do, um, which is amazing. And it's uh, that's something that you want from whoever you're working with anyway. So it's just great to even feel that vibe, even just from here, it's into your recall. And I guess it leads me to something you said earlier, and that came to mind. When you think about obviously, everyone's got smartphones now and can take pictures now. Do you feel that? What do you classify as a photographer? Because people call themselves, Well, you don't know my phone, I can out there snap, snap. I'm out there taking pictures. I know what I'm doing.
0: So oh, debate. Oh my <laughs> God. I've had this same debate. Every single month with one of my photographer colleagues, even today when I was picking up the prints um, for the exhibition, um, I was talking about this with, with the printer because, okay, let, let, me, let me put a couple of questions to you actually. Would you class somebody as, in fact, what's the most important thing to you when booking a photographer? Is it the fact that they've got qualifications? That they've got a good portfolio or that they're, they've they got good recommendations from people, you know? What would be the most important thing for you?
1: I think portfolio and recommendations probably go hand in hand because I don't want... I want someone who can vouch for someone and be like, they're easy to work with. You don't want stress. You want someone to be like, yep, they're creative, they can think they're on feet. So that's where the portfolio comes in. So that's probably my main two. The last one's uh, a minor.
0: Okay. Okay, so... So that's one aspect of photography, the fact that someone's got a portfolio which shows they've got experience shooting X, Y, Z. So another question for you, if there's somebody that maybe um, calls themselves a photographer, maybe say they've been shooting for 10 years, but they have two clients a year, would you class that as a photographer? For, for what they've got, they've got a portfolio, it might be a small one, but they've got a portfolio.
1: I guess personally, I... I like variety and creativity. And therefore, if you've just been shooting for two clients a year, it's very easy for you to just get into that same, I guess that same way of working with that one particular client. Me coming in brand new and I want something different, that's not what you've done for the last however many years because you've been used to doing one particular thing in one particular way. So personally, I would like salt was very creative, things outside the box, has a wealth of experience and a diverse portfolio, I guess, the best way to put it, rather than just those two.
0: Does it make a difference if that person is a full-time photographer or they're an accountant that shoots at the weekends? Oh. These are all questions and these like colleagues all <laughs> the time.
1: If I am going for a photographer, I want a photographer. However, I would add the caveat. There are people I know who might have a nine to five but they also have a love for photography and they invest a lot of time into that. So I wouldn't necessarily use whether it's a full-time, part-time as a way of measuring. it will be more around what we said earlier on, the portfolio recommendations, all that kind of stuff. That will probably be what it is rather than where the side hustle or what it's a full-time gig.
0: And these are all some of the discussions that I have with my colleagues. And I don't think I've come to any definitive conclusion yet. I used to be quite steadfast in thinking that it's whether or not somebody's full-time or part-time Just because when you're full-time you can dedicate a different amount of time to your to your skill to your craft if you're working 40 60 hours for the man in the office you can only dedicate 20 hours per week for example to your photography So I used to be quite quite firm on thinking that that was the difference if you're full time then you're working in the industry you have an understanding of the industry that's very different to if you're um, um, a hobbyist or an emerging photographer or working on becoming a photographer which is what I would have previously called people that um, are doing a 9 to 5 and doing photography on the side but then you have all those other caveats because I know people that have been massive award-winning photographers, and they were still working in a bank at the time until they were able to pluck up the courage to give up the bank and go for, go for photography full time. Um, I know people who have um, been um, or would call themselves a photographer and have been shooting for ten years, but they only have a couple clients a year, and. Probably don't get a lot of practice or don't have a huge portfolio. So, if I was to compare them to somebody who's shooting, for example, weddings every single weekend for three years, but they've been shooting for ten years, then that person's more of a photographer than this person. So, it, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult way to classify. And I still haven't haven't come to any any conclusions myself. But I have this debate all the time.
1: If you haven't come to a conclusion, then I'm just going to sit back and wait. This is is your world and your field. So I guess the last question I'll, I'll use to wrap up this interview, how do you define leadership?
0: I think maybe it's something that is defined for you by others. And what I mean by that is leaders are picked out by other people. So... You might not see yourself as a leader, but you might have other people saying to you, yeah, "You know, you are a leader. You're inspirational. You do this. You do that." And often we don't recognise that in ourselves, or, or it's not something that's the done thing to say about ourselves. So I think I don't know if I can define it, but I, I do think that leaders are picked out by other people. And I'm trying to think. Well, I, I don't know how else how else I, I, I would put I would put it. Um. I think being able to being able to show people a certain path without necessarily without that being the purpose of not the purpose without that being what you're purposefully doing I think you can be a leader without even knowing that you're a leader so you may be showing someone a particular path you may be inspiring somebody in a way etc you don't know it's not until they point it out to you that that's the case and i think for me that's what leadership is it's about people who are leading a certain path treading a certain field and not recognizing that they're actually they're actually helping the people that are following behind them in that same field or path
1: gonna say this is why i call you a leader because actually what you do with the work that you do is not only breaking a lot of barriers in terms of representation but the courses that you run helping people with turning this into from the side hustle to a full-time gig to the things you do at the universities and colleges and different bits and pieces like that there's a lot of stuff that you do that you have become a trailblazer other people who are looking at you and looking to you as a leader. So whether you recognise this or not, I'm just letting you know that that's exactly what you just described is what you have been doing and what you continue to do in the field that you're operating. And it's it's a pleasure and it's a delight to actually see.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate that. I really, really do appreciate that.
1: This has been this has been enjoyable. I've had lots of fun.
0: Lots of questions.
1: I had lots of fun. Um, But all the information um, around Denise, aka Lindsay, will be available for people who want to step into her world and she can put you in frame. Um, I've had some amazing shots by Denise in some of the things I've done in the past and she's absolutely amazing for sure. So highly, I personally highly recommend her, but her work speaks for herself in everything that she does. So definitely get involved, connect with her, work with her and just spend some time with her. She's got some great gems. And you can learn about some some Pumas. And you can have some Puma night debates as well. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I didn't want to step into that one today. I was like, I, ain't got, I really, got, really got no time
0: <laughs> to get into
1: that one. But yeah, for sure.
0: Well, thank you for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. I think um every time somebody approaches me to do a podcast, I'm like, me? Oh, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: No problem at all. This is Evident Leadership. We'll see you next week. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out.
2: So we met at the most unusual, unlikely place, I think, at a we'd both well, I didn't know this at the time, but I'd read the book Rich Dad Poor Dad and I found out they were doing a conference in London, in Victoria, and I saw the ad in the paper and I thought, okay, I'm gonna go. Uh, I wanna go and learn about property. So I went there and it was a Friday, Saturday, Sunday event. So they had a free event, then they had another event. So I went to it and at the event, I didn't know that Mary's brother, who was meant to come with his wife, Ended up coming with his younger sister because his wife was not very well. So I got to the event. It was a room that was full of people, maybe about 300 people, and I was right at the very front, like a proper geek. I sat right in front. I want to take my notes. I want to get all the tips. And whilst I was there, during like one of the breaks, I looked at the back, all the way to the back, and I I spotted Mary.